Hello, hello, I'm Sarah. And I'm Joanna. And we are your therapists next door. Join us as we demystify therapy and destigmatize mental health. Every episode, we interview a healthcare professional. It's sometimes serious, sometimes sad, most times ridiculous. This week, we welcome Rebecca Lee, who is a licensed clinical social worker. Welcome everyone to Therapist Next Door, the podcast that shows you the human side of your friendly neighborhood healthcare worker. We do this by interviewing someone in the helping profession, asking questions that you want the answers to and answering questions you didn't know you had. I'm Joanna, a board certified music therapist and a licensed professional counselor in the state of Pennsylvania. I'm a white, straight, cisgendered female and my pronouns are she, hers, and I recently went back to eating peanut butter and jelly for every lunch. That's that's a really great meal. I ate that every day for, I think, like three years, peanut butter and jelly. Yeah. During high school, that was my go-to um, every day. So It's so easy. It's the easiest meal ever. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Because like right now I'm having aversions to hot food. So. Yeah. <laughs> what the fuck? It <laughs> yeah. took me a moment. I'm so sorry. Uh, it's okay thoughts and prayers your way. (laughs) (laughs) And I am Sarah, an LPC from Pennsylvania, transplant from South Jersey. I am a straight cis white woman and my pronouns are she, her, and I am in a current battle with a pothole in front of our home. Oh goodness. It's three feet wide and at least eight inches deep. (laughs) And that's a Philly pothole. That's a Philly pot. That's a Pennsylvania pothole people. The road is owned by PennDOT. Nobody will come out to fill it. And everyone hits it at full speed. And it sounds like everyone's car breaks every time. So I don't know how people are still driving around in my town with cars. And I also know that landscaping season is coming, which means trucks with loosely attached trailers. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, continuing to enjoy that renter life. But yeah, fun fact. (laughs) I mean, I drove through a pothole yesterday and it was much better than I thought it was going to be. There was like a Tesla in front of me that waved me through. I think he wanted to see what what happened with my car if I drove over it. Uh, So (laughs) I did, but I have like a a mid-size SUV. So, well, it's also because like they close all of the streets around me for some reason it's like a video game trying to get out to like Mm -hmm. just go five blocks to target because i can't walk there anymore um (laughs) so versions to hot food and i can't walk to target so doing great yeah there was a pothole that was on the gerard bridge that went over the schuylkill that every i i would have like i'd have anxiety the the quarter mile leading up to it because i knew it was coming (laughs) And it was there all winter of like 2019. And this, this wasn't a pothole. This was a hole in the bridge. I mean, it couldn't have just been a pothole. The The bridge was coming out under this thing. I swear to Beautiful. you. I, How safe. Well, isn't it something that like, there's like, all of these numbers are wrong. That I'm about <laughs> to say. <laughs> but there's like 300 
did like bridges like over like you know bridges over roads bridges over train tracks bridges over the multiple rivers around philly and like 75 percent of them are in disrepair again all those numbers are wrong but it's yeah that definitely spikes my anxiety um yeah 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 yeah, i i remember there was one by the trader joe's in center city on market street for a while it was the size of a car Mm -hmm. you had to know about that one uh to Mm -hmm. because like it, yeah it was just like the size of a car um we can talk about potholes forever i realize i have a lot of pothole just like also that like feeling when you're driving and you've driven that this road so many times that you know where the potholes are so you're just like you know in the back of your yeah. mind just like dodging them and it just feels like you've entered this flow state that's beautiful yeah i like the moment when you realize that it's been filled in and you're safe. <laughs> yeah. That's a, that's a nice moment. But, you know, to put a cap on this, I did email PennDOT, <laughs> let them know there was a pothole disturbing everyone's sleep and people who work from home. And I got an email back that said, we will take care of, thanks. <laughs> they did not complete the sentence. <clears throat> PennDOT, you've been called out. So I guess they on won't. On our podcast. Like, they can't complete sentences, man. They're not going to complete my bottle being filled in. Yeah. Well, someone's going to have to do something. I'm sorry. I, I do think, honestly, in Philly, people start filling them in themselves. I've seen some very... My husband is ready yeah. to do that. He has... I'm not going to incriminate him. Okay. He has the equipment. <laughs> All right. Uh, how are your floors, Joanna? Uh, right now, very messy. Literally. Mm um because i was just throwing things around trying to find a little tiny device um but in general for the podcast i think they're pretty good how about you yeah same um clean the floors last week because i love to or i clean them this weekend because i love to come home to a clean apartment because i'm leaving for a conference tomorrow but yeah podcast floor is also clean you know right. we don't make mistakes we're perfect so there's yeah. no potholes in our floors <laughs> there we go oh the pain yes yeah. yep. all right well stay tuned after the break for our history lesson And now it's time for our lesson. The lesson or history lesson is compiled facts describing history and or current events, good and bad, in order to give context for the field our interviewee works in. All right, Joanna, today our sources include A History of Psychological Ethics by Shay Matthew, wikipedia.org, Research Methods in Psychology, second Canadian edition by Ai Chant Chiang, Rijav Jianji, and Paul Price. Trigger warning for today, we will mention the Holocaust in 20th century Europe and the Tuskegee study. Today, we're going to talk about the history of ethics codes. 
One of the earliest ethics codes was the Nuremberg Code, a set of 10 principles written in 1947 in conjunction with the trials of Nazi physicians accused of shockingly cruel research on concentration camp prisoners during World War II. It provided a standard against which to compare the behavior of the men on trial, many of whom were eventually convicted and either imprisoned or sentenced to death. The Nuremberg Code was particularly clear about the importance of carefully weighing risks against benefits and the need for informed consent. I love informed consent. Me too. I'm a big informed consent nerd. (laughs) The Declaration of The Declaration of Helsinki is a similar ethics code that was created by the World Medical Council in 1964. Among the standards that it added to the Nuremberg Code was that research with human participants should be based on a written protocol, a detailed description of the research that is reviewed by an independent committee. The Declaration of Helsinki has been revised several times, most recently since 2013. Wow. Wow. Hmm. The United States' concerns about the Tuskegee study and others led to the publication in 1978 of a set of federal guidelines called the Belmont Report. As a result of this study, 128 participants died of syphilis or related complications. 40 wives were infected and 19 children were born with congenital syphilis. The Belmont Report explicitly recognized the principle of seeking justice, including the importance of conducting research in a way that distributes risks and benefits fairly across different groups at the societal level. The Belmont Report was influential in the formation of national and ethical guidelines for research in both the United States and Canada. The history of ethics and psychology. We start with a quote from Nicholas Hobbes. And it starts, these rules should do much more than help the unethical psychologists keep out of trouble. They should be of palpable aid to the ethical psychologist in making daily decisions." End quote. The first Committee on Ethical Standards for Psychologists was developed in 1947 and chaired by Edward Tolman. He put together the APA Committee on Ethical Standards for Psychologists in 1947. Tolman was a big name in psychology, working mainly in the early to mid part of the 20th century. Like many researchers at the time, he was mainly in the behaviorist school. Also very active in the APA, which is the American Psychologist Association, he came forward with the aim of creating this code of ethics for the profession. Despite the APA having been established in 1892, it had not yet established a standard code of ethics. It was over 50 years after its inception that the APA finally began to formulate a standard code like this, which is explained away by its size at inception. Tolman's motivation in forming a committee and creating a code of ethics was to change the behavior of psychologists. I, I love the idea of ethics codes being created after the inception of, of an organization. Yeah. Yeah. An organization that is organized enough to call themselves an association. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Cool. 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 One area where ethics were clearly needed was the involvement of psychologists in professional activities and public works during the World War II. To gain insight on what to include, the committee sought information from psychologists in the field. Psychologists discussed situations in which they felt they encountered ethical dilemmas. So here is where Nicholas Hobbes was talking about these ethical psychologists. They did test. Well, until I say this sentence, they did testing of young men for the draft and soldiers to see the status of their mental abilities and mental health, which positions of the military they would be good for, etc. 
There was even an existence of a system of color coding from gray to black. The lighter gray you were, the weaker your mental health status. The darker towards black meant you were rated as uh, psychologically stronger. So they would put those latter types of people in serious warfare type situations and other weaker, quote, types in less demanding roles. A second committee was formed and headed by Nicholas Hobbs. This eight-member committee was responsible for the creation of the first document. The committee used contributions from over 2,000 psychologists to create the first principles. The committee reviewed the situation submitted by psychologists to the first committee and attempted to organize them into themes. Themes that emerged reflected many of the political and social issues of the time, including racial segregation, post-war politics, and the testing industry. The first version of the Ethical Standards of Psychologists was adopted in 1952 and published in 53 by the American Psychological Association. The document was over 170 pages in length. The first version contained many ethical dilemmas that psychologists had written about and submitted in the first committee as case examples. Revisions to the 1953 version continued over the decades until the most recent version, which was published in 2002 and amended in 2010. Each revision has been guided by a set of objectives put forth by Hobbes in 1948, quote, to express the best ethical practices in the field as judged by a large representative sample of members of the APA to reflect an explicit value system as well as clearly articulated decisional and behavioral rules to be applicable to the full range of activities and roles encountered in the work of psychologists to have the broadest possible participation among psychologists in its development and revisions and to influence the ethical conduct of psychologists by meriting widespread identification and acceptance among members of the discipline end quote Revisions occurred over the years pertaining to many changes in society, culture, politics, the legal system, and the economy, and the healthcare system have all been influential in the development of the past and current ethical codes. The case examples were also removed. The current version of the code was developed in 2002 and became effective in 2003 and was amended in 2010 and again in 2017. I want to give a quote here from my own therapist, okay. which is one of the coolest way I've coolest ways I've had ethics uh, viewed to me, ethics explained to me. Um, These rules are meant to empower you, not restrict you. Mm. So keep that in mind as we transition into our next section of the episode. Here we go. Sorry, I took your I took your transition. <laughs> you can you can take any transition from me. Too. I'm taking it. Take it. All right. All right. All right, Rebecca Lee is a philosopher, a farmer, an artist, a leadership strategist, and also a licensed clinical therapist. She's the owner of Just Living Therapy, where the work is centered around supporting helping professionals kick burnout and bravely live in their own authenticity and have profound impact. She believes the world a better place and her mission is to support those that strive to do this meaningful work. She goes by she, her, and lives in Toppenish, Washington, on the indigenous land of the Yakima Nation, with her multi-generational family, partner, two small kids, and a menagerie of chickens, goats, and cows. If you visit her at the Just Living Farm, don't be surprised if she puts you to work. And definitely don't be surprised if she talks to you about dirt. Welcome, Rebecca. Welcome. Thank you. So good to be here. Yeah. 
We are so happy to have you. I love this intro. I'm very excited to hear about your life and what you do. Yeah, I'm ready. I'm ready to get on a plane right now and get to work. Come on, yeah. back. <laughs> <laughs> so Rebecca, tell us a little bit about the work that you do. Yeah. Um, I think that like over the years, I feel like I finally got to the place where it's much easier to talk about my work. I think sometimes in, you know, when we're in these helping professionals, there's like, we're kind of catering to who we're talking to um, because of all the nuances of what, what helping professionals do and what that means. And so I finally feel like I'm at that, that place where I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm always super excited to talk about work, about my work. So thank you so much. Um, I'm a licensed clinical social worker and who I primarily work with right now are highly motivated helping professionals healers, change makers. So I work with a lot of social workers, counselors, therapists, um, and I love working with them. I mean, just such amazing people that are just trying to make an impact in the world. Um, on a symptom level, as far as like where I work, I work in burnout right now. Um, and I think primarily because we're in this pandemic, it's just so, it's, you can't get away from it. I mean, you, you just, you turn the corner and you see another person who's burned out. You see another person who's struggling. And so that's kind of the space that I'm working um, and how I do that. So you guys talked about ethics and the, the background of ethics is I kind of, I do a three-tiered approach. So I start on maybe a more surface level and focusing on on this ethical conversation. So like what you guys talked about, where, where does ethics come from? Where did this all originate? And if I think about it in like three phases, you have this initial phase of protecting, creating some ethical standards around protecting people, primarily in like research type situations. And then it expands out into a second phase <clears throat> of transitioning and extending that support to people that are being served in programs, people be, that are being served by helping professionals. And I think right now we're at that point and you can kind of feel this tension um, where we're at that transition point where we need to start including helping professionals in who we're protecting. Um, because I think helping professionals are starting to get lost. So that's kind of my surface level approach to burnout is having that ethical conversation. And underlying that, I, I work in landscape integration. So that's kind of the idea of starting to integrate our authentic self and outward from that, integrate with our community and outward from that, incorporating just our existence and everything that's, that's around us. And the seasonality idea, this idea of can we be, can we work in a professional space, but incorporate spring, summer, winter, fall into that space and have a little bit more of um, some natural rhythms to our life and how we function as professionals and how we interact with people. So that's a little bit about what I do and kind of where I'm at right now. Thank you for that. Yeah. I, right off the bat, I love that idea of kind of giving up, not control, but just uh, like allegiance to the cycles that we live within, right? If we're, whether we're talking seasonal, moon, 
really any any cycle that we're in and just kind of allowing it to carry us from day to day that's a really nice that's a really nice way of thinking can you tell us a little more about what a highly motivated helper is that one i have continued to kind of hone that mm-hmm. idea and this is primarily thinking in the work that i have done uh, i don't currently do therapy. I do some coaching work and I primarily am a clinical supervisor right now. So I'm working with people that are across that spectrum on where they're at on just starting out to almost getting their license. And I noticed that when I look at the program that the, the group program that I've developed, it really is focused on those folks that as far as burnout and the exhaustion that comes up, they're at the place where they're like, something's got to give. I don't want to be in this space anymore. And I think some, some, some people are not quite to that space yet. They're still kind of sitting in this spin and not seeing that there is another option. And so I'm really looking at working with those that are like, you know, they raise their hand when you say, hey, do you want something different? Are you ready to be done with spinning? Are you ready to get out of this? Are you ready to do, um, have some change in your life and feel motivated that you've got the energy to make some of those changes? That's kind of what I'm looking for, highly motivated, which really in our industry, that's, that's a lot of us. I mean- Mm-hmm. Yeah. It kind of almost goes without saying that <laughs> most of us are there. Yeah, well, I feel like I'm being spoken to. <laughs> That's definitely something that Joanne and I have both really struggled with is that, I mean, you know, something we're overcoming too is just that that need and want to do as much as possible, oh combating goodness. with the need and want to do as much as possible for ourselves and even how even how like focusing on self-care and wellness burnout can exist. So it's, it's very nice to, <laughs> it's very nice to have that validated. I, that's wonderful work that you do. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, even mm-hmm. the self-care piece that you talked about is, you know, if, if our only idea of self-care is, is what we can add, like keep adding to our plate, we're like, wait, but yeah. our plate is full. Mm-hmm. We can't <laughs> yeah. add anything else. And so I really like this, the seasoning and this landscape integration idea because it 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 forces a different way of looking at self-care of slowing down and doing less potentially versus doing more and adding more checklists of things that we need to do to feel better about our day yeah I I feel like even you know now that things are opening up and I'm having more like social engagements it's like I have to realize that 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 is self-care, but like I can do it too much to the point where it's not self-care anymore. And like really finding that balance that I feel like I never noticed before, but because we had this kind of like cutoff of like, you can't go out, can't do anything, can't see anyone. And now it's coming back. I'm really realizing like, Hey, maybe I am more on the introverted part of the spectrum where I need to watch my time. Um, Yeah, for sure. Definitely. How has the pandemic affected your career day to day, what you do? That is a good question. And wow, such a loaded question. Because right? <laughs> <laughs> we just look at this and we're like, okay, what, what has the pandemic not affected? Um, 
So at the beginning of the yep. pandemic, <laughs> I was working in uh, a leadership position in a hospital-based hospice organization. So I've been in hospice for like the last 10 years. And um, just realizing that whatever gaps were existing in the system, that the, pandi- the pandemic made them... Uh, they went from potholes, let's say, <laughs> to just like craters. And so, you know, and, and you have this employee base that is just falling through the cracks left yeah. and right. And, you know, we understand these healthcare systems and we understand the financial strain and how much, you know, they're just trying to stay afloat and trying to take care of the community. But you see the, the burden on the folks doing the work and being in that middle management type position and feeling like my impact is shrinking way down. And so a big switch for me with the pandemic was looking at the skill set that I was bringing to the table, my authentic self, and where is that going to be useful? Where is it gonna be serving people in a real way? And so I pulled back from um, working in that system. I was in that for a while, helping a lot with getting through that initial part of the pandemic and then getting COVID myself and still pushing and pushing and going and just, you know, you just don't stop. You just keep going, realizing that this is the time. The pandemic was the eye opener for me is I always wanted to teach and really dig into some in-depth conversations around landscape and how to do things differently and how to avoid burnout, but I couldn't do it in that system. I needed to be able to pull back and create something a little bit different so I could access people that needed that kind of support. So for me, there was a huge shift in my career around the pandemic. And so I still work with, with hospital organizations and different leadership organizations but I do that on a consultative base. I can come in and help them sort through some of these issues that are going on, but I'm not the middle manager that feels like I'm, I'm stuck and I've got my, mm. my hands tied. So that's been a big shift for me in the last couple of years. Yeah. It's, it's wild how many people have been able to get jump started in this something that they, you know, maybe were really wanting to do and maybe, I mean, it's, <laughs> It's terrible because it has affected everybody in in such a upheaval way. And for some people, the upheaval was very positive and the direction was actually up. Mm-hmm. Um, and if things like that happened for you, it, it kind of put you into this place where you were ready to do something you had wanted to do for a while. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. And I think it, it goes to, I think a lot of people are in this space where it goes to show you how much the safety net of the the norm that we create in these programs or organizations that we're working in, they may be really unhealthy, mm-hmm. but they're what we know and how long we stay in that space. Um, and it takes a pandemic sometimes for us to be like, whoa, like step back, we need to do something a little bit differently. Or if I'm staying in the organization, I need to start showing up with different different boundaries and expectations on what this might need to look like. But it's interesting how, no matter how 
unhealthy it feels, how much of a safety net that feel that that feels. And so we just stay, we stay and we stay and we keep going and we keep pushing. Mm -hmm. It's just so funny talking about pushing and how like that's the, the, the whole thing I was talking to with my therapist about yesterday was I'm just a pusher and it's really hard to, and like right now I'm just too close to the edge. Like I have to make sure that I'm not pushing too much. It's just, I feel like a default for especially us like helpers and healers that we just push beyond our limits mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and we're told to yes you know i mean and that's supported in it <laughs> yeah we we are enabled in it you know my professional development was is trying to coach therapists that have been exploited by bosses and managers and supervisors to do that to keep pushing and kind of like moralizing your choice to not push, you know, you're not a good therapist or you're not a good person or you're not this or not mm-hmm. that. If you're not, you know, aching at the end of mm-hmm. every shift, if you're not like in physical and emotional pain. Um, yeah. yeah. I, I love the I, idea of God. That's where I think the, the conversation around ethics is so important. I mean, you read through, anyone who's a a helping professional, we have those, you know, that ethical standard that we can read through in the code of conduct. Um, It's, it's beautiful at how much it supports the clientele, but when even our code of ethics doesn't include us, it doesn't include our responsibility to ourselves and our Mm -hmm. own health as a clinician then we know it's not going to have, we're not going to have the same impact. We're not going to be as present for our clients if we can't do that first. So it's like even our code of ethics, something that we all kind of hang our hat on is not even set up to tell us to take a break, slow down, take care of yourself, put yourself first. You can't show up unless you're healthy. And, um, Mm -hmm. that was my thing my my I was 100% ethics 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 you know go through school and it's kind of hammered in Mm -hmm. and um and then you realize like wait a second why am I not included in in this handbook yeah yeah you're right it's made to feel kind of like a I mean like you said a lot to protect clients but also like a lot to make us feel threatened if we (laughs) do something wrong not Mm -hmm. in order to not make these mistakes maybe maybe rest mm-hmm. so that's yeah. when mistakes are made definitely and it shows like from a like fundamental standpoint how much we put ourselves in the back like from what we're being taught like for, in school to to focus on the clients focus on ethics focus on doing the right thing and not focus on taking care of ourselves even though like self-care is said it's not I feel like I have a much different view of a self-care than I did when I was in school Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it said, you know, self-care is talked about so much, but if we, if we look at our society, we look at, you know, how, how much we may even be commodified, but how much everything is commodified in our society and self-care has become that thing that you have to, you have to bring in, you have to almost purchase it mm-hmm. and bring it into mm-hmm. your space. Um, and, and so, you know, we have our leaders talking about self-care. We have our supervisors talking about self-care. We have it all over the place, but then it's always 
I just haven't got the right self-care checklist yet, or I haven't purchased mm-hmm. the right thing, or I haven't gotten onto the right mm-hmm. app. <laughs> and mm-hmm. you look at it and you're like, wait a second, self-care shouldn't cost us anything. Self-care <laughs> should be, should be just like easily accessible. Um, but that doesn't make, that doesn't spread the money around if self-care doesn't cost anything. Yeah. I mean, thinking of self-care as like a state of being instead of a commodity mm-hmm. is so much more helpful, but yeah, we, I mean, what are you doing for yourself? Like, I don't, you know, like that, that question of like, how are you approaching self-care? You know, it's, it's so loaded. Yeah, definitely loaded. <laughs> So Rebecca, how do you feel like your personality is reflected in the work that you do? I feel like that's becoming more and more obvious to me because I am so much of my work is so much trying to figure out like, okay, who am I authentically? (laughs) Who is Rebecca? How am I showing up in this space and being able to do my work, do social work, but it's not a nine to five job. Like it just is inherently who I am and how I exist in the world. And so it's things like, you know, I'm a farmer, a farmer that works towards sustainability. So it's how can I integrate this idea around farming? And that's why landscape integration flashes in my mind. How do I, how do I connect that with the work that I do? And if I'm outside, so like right now, it is um, it is nearing springtime, but it's always the end of the the winter that we have birthing season. So we've got we've got the the next door neighbor cows. There are calves all over the place, and we are waiting for our our goats to have babies. So we're just like waiting for them to drop at any moment, and so my work there is around life and death. And so you're constantly looking at um, work from a different, a different lens and the simplicity, like there's profound work in life and death, but there's such a simplicity to it. And we think about how kids are when they're really, really tiny. There's a simplicity there. There's a simplicity around even maybe how we interact with with our children when they're really small. There's a simplicity when you're, when you're a month out from death, there's a simplicity there. And so it's, can, it's thinking about, can we integrate that simplicity into the space in between life and death? Because we very much overcomplicate everything. And so, you know, that personality piece, that farming piece, it's, it's looking at how to integrate that in. Um, to the kind of conversations that I'm having with social workers and therapists and healers. And another piece of that personality that's pretty strong for me is I am an artist. And so I'm always looking at how I can convey certain messages and ideas through something that feels visual, something that you feel like you can kind of get your hands on. Um, And I think one of the core pieces with my personality right now, and I think sometimes when we look at our, our strengths, sometimes I ask people, what are, what's that, what's that thing where people say you're too much, because that's probably where your strength lies. And so I know like 
my too much space is around this excessive passion for social justice and people being able to find their authentic self. And so it's just kind of, it's the constant rhetoric. So I'm always going back and forth to it. And so the people that work with me, they get my personality constantly because I'm like, let's come back to what I'm really passionate about. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's, I'm, I'm hoping that over the years that continues, that my personality comes through more and more as I go. Um, I would also like to think that I add in a little bit of humor into my work. I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's humorous to other people <laughs> that, that I work with, but anyway, I can get in, in a farm story or an animal story or something that happened that morning. I figure out how to get that in. And um, yeah, I think this work is just really fun. Like the more we really start figuring out who we are and how to translate that into our conversations, it gets really exciting. Yes. Think, uh, as you're talking about sustainability, that's something that uh, my husband and I are trying to work towards. So my project for the beginning of the year is just taking all plastic out of the bathroom, right? So even that, I'm realizing yeah. that we have so many, thank you. We have so many things implemented in our lives that are just meant to make things a little easier. So the, but they are, you know, terrible for us or they're terrible, terrible for the environment. And that's been really fun to learn all at once. But, but my point is we, we have all these, we have all these ways to make our lives easier, which just makes room for us to invent more things for us to do, to fill our time. So instead, and I know I'm speaking like really niche here. So I'm, I'm transitioning from like cling wrap to beeswax wrap right now, but it takes a little mm -hmm. longer to warm it up. It takes a little longer yep. to clean it, but I'm throwing out a whole lot less. And I'm realizing that I just need to do less, even mm -hmm. though it takes me physically a little longer. I have to do a little less during my day. Mm -hmm. I have to do a lot less. Mm -hmm. And it's that investment. I'm getting very meta now, but it's that investment in just yeah. taking a few more minutes to do it. And feeling okay with that and getting used to that and then just enjoying the extra time I have or the extra money I have or the extra shit I'm not buying <laughs> and putting back into the earth. <laughs> it's, I oh, hope that that, that was, I hope that that came full circle. <laughs> definitely. I mean, it's just little things. And sometimes it's like, you know, I think when you go back years where, you know, we have, we have less there's less commodity, there's less to purchase and to fill our gaps mm -hmm. um, that, you know, and things were more sustainable. It's like, you go back to like, okay, how, how are my, how are my grandparents doing this? And it was like, I was trying to figure out how to take the plastic, same thing out of the bathroom. Cause I'm mm -hmm. like, this is, this is not good. <laughs> we got to do something different here. And so I'm looking at like, okay, maybe I can get like, because you get the little, the, the soap and that comes in the plastic bottles. And so I'm like, okay, let's not do that. Maybe there's like mm -hmm. powder soap. Maybe, you know, I've seen that you'd be able to put something into water and it creates soap. And like, what can I do? <laughs> I'm talking to my grandmother. She's like, honey, just get a bar of soap. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and I'm just, I'm like, it's, you know, how try, yep. trying to figure out how to go simple. Sometimes we make it 
so complex. <laughs> and it's just like, just buy your bar of soap that came in, in a, in a paper or cardboard package. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> or go to your you know you go to the local farmer's market and you've got people that are making soap and so um trying to keep it trying to keep it simple um it's hard though it's really hard because we're ingrained with all of this access constantly mm-hmm. to make things more complicated it, it really does and you're right there's just so much more for us to consume that then, I mean, you know, that compulsion to consume just becomes stronger. I mean, we work with this every day. We work with our clients dealing with that compulsion and we deal with it ourselves. It's hard to resist. And we're not, again, we're enabled by, mm-hmm. by a, you know, an economic structure that wants us to keep doing that. And it's, right. it's so neat how that can transfer into our therapeutic work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm. So what brought you into this field? Why are you a therapist? Or a supervisor, I should say. A supervisor. Or well, a farmer or an artist. Or a farmer. <laughs> I feel like it's one of those that um, I was not born knowing that I was going to do <laughs> what I'm doing now. Never anticipated it. And probably pushed against it for for quite a while. Um I got my bachelor's. I mean, I always kind of knew farming was going to be a part of my life because we grew up, my, my sister and I, my parents grew up on a farm. And so we had a couple sheep and we had a cow and that always felt really safe and secure and, and comfortable for me. Um, and anytime I was around animals, like I always felt like I was kind of at home. So farmer, that was always there, but with social work, um, I got my bachelor's in art. So I was always fascinated with, you know, creating, creating things. And I was not going to go into social work because my mom is a social worker. And I'm like, I'm, I have to, I have to create my own path. I'm going to do something different. Mm-hmm. And then I get through the art program and, um, And, you know, the people that I'm working with, the community that I live in, the conversations we're having about anti-racism, I'm like, I have to do social work. That all of a sudden I'm like, this is what I have to do. Shoot, like I didn't think, I thought I would be able to do something different. And so it was, you know, I kind of had like this, this almost frustration that I'm, I'm being pulled into something that didn't necessarily feel like my own. And so kind of got over that jump into my social work program. And, um, and so then I'm like, I'm going to work with kids. I'm going to work with kids and families. It's what I've worked with before. And my mom was also in hospice. So I'm like, I'm not going to do that. Like I'm not creating my own path. This is what we're doing. (laughs) And so then I, I get a job as a caregiver. Again, one of those that I'm like, this is probably never going to fit, but you know, I need something to pay the bills. And I fall in love with it. I fall in love with these women who are at different stages of Alzheimer's and um, and then having some experience of, of, of folks that are on hospice. And then again, full circle, I'm like, shoot, I gotta do hospice. This is what I have to do. <laughs> so went, you know, went through social worker, went into hospice and um, 
Love it. Loved it. Absolutely loved it. And, and really sunk into, okay, this is genetic. This is exactly what you were supposed to do. And that's okay. And from high school back, I was always extremely introverted, but to the point where I, I was the shy, quiet one in class. And so never thought that I would do, I would be in leadership, never thought that I would do public speaking thinking about, you know, um, navigating team conversations. That was not, that was not up my alley. And I got into working in a wraparound program where you do a lot of facilitation and supporting, supporting um, children and then realized that I love this. And so it's like everything, never expected really any of it, but was able to walk into some of these opportunities and realize what I love doing is talking about the whole life spectrum. I love talking about birth to death. I love working with people across that spectrum and um, being in some of those leadership positions, realizing that I love supervision. I love that as a supervisor, I feel like it's 50-50. I'm gaining so much out of that experience that the people that I'm that I'm working with as they are gaining from me. And it feels super balanced. Um, and, and so as I told you, moving into the space of burnout and working on this program was just because I experienced burnout myself. I was in that space of, you know, feeling like you're sinking and you're drowning and not really knowing what to do next um, and realizing that the answers were at the farm, the answers were outside, the answers were there, but I just had to reconnect with some of those things again. So that was a very long-winded <laughs> explanation of why I do, <laughs> why I'm a therapist. That's very beautiful. Thank you. I, I think all our journeys to becoming a therapist are long-winded. So thank you for sharing that. <laughs> Uh, it is not a field entered into lightly. Definitely. No. How do most people react when you tell them that you're a therapist and what would you like their reactions to be? That's a good question. Huh? I think, I think that has probably, <clears throat> I've had a tremendous shift around that. I think if I look at how people reacted to that like five years ago, I think the reactions that I was getting was kind of a range of things, either feeling like, ooh, I now have access to someone that might be able to support me with some of these things <laughs> I'm dealing with because <laughs> she's got some expertise or being concerned that I'm, I'm psych psychoanalyzing or I'm assessing, or I'm like trying to figure out, you know, get into people's minds and figure out like what's going on, what's the depths behind it. Um, and then I think there's, there was the other component of just kind of like a sympathy that was happening around, oh, that must be really hard. Cause you deal with really hard stories and you have to deal with people's trauma and if you have to deal with death and grief and that's got to be so hard. And so I just had this range of reactions that didn't feel, I didn't really feel connected to that almost made me not really engaged in wanting to really tell people what I do because I didn't really want those reactions. 
But I think since I've been working on integrating and since I've been working on really stepping into my own authenticity and kind of owning that space and that, um, that lens that I'm kind of viewing the world through, all of a sudden I'm more passionate about how I explain what I do and how I show up to that conversation. Like I'm excited. I'm enthralled. I'm like, yeah, this is what I do. It's so much fun. I love my work every day. And now all of a sudden people are engaged. They're interested. They're intrigued. They're asking questions. Um, And I always thought it was my work that gave a particular reaction, but then like kind of moving to the place of realizing, okay, it wasn't probably the work. It was probably all the baggage and biases that I was bringing to that conversation and worry and concern for how it was going to be perceived that kind of belittled my own, my own work and made it smaller. And so I think it's shifted. I think it's shifted a little bit over time. We can internalize so much of what people how people respond when we tell them something about ourselves. And I, I really feel that <laughs> definitely. Mm-hmm. I, I went through a phase of completely eliminating therapists and just saying like, Oh, I do group, I do groups, <laughs> you know, I do like group counseling and uh, uh, shockingly that didn't land well either. So now it's, <laughs> oh, no. but yeah, I, but it, it seems like there's a general consensus that once you really get to where you want to be, you're able to, give it to people and feel a little better about how they receive it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think a lot of us experience that in the helping fields, but if, if there's that people pleaser piece of it on top of it, mm-hmm. then I tend mm-hmm. to, I was tending to adjust my explanation to the person that I was talking to. So I was constantly changing it. Like, what does this person want? What do they want to hear? what's going to not ruffle their feathers. <laughs> and so then you're just kind of, you're kind of feeling like you're in the space of, I don't even know who I am. Cause I keep changing who, it, what it is for the people that I'm talking to. And instead switching to like more of a, almost like a, a take it or leave it. Like, this is, it. this is who I am. <laughs> this is what you're stuck with. That's my favorite stage right there. <laughs> <laughs> this is what it is. Well, <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Like, sorry, not sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. SNS, yeah. <laughs> babe. All right. How has your identity helped or hindered your practice? And, you know, we're talking racial, ethnic, creed, sexuality, gender. Yeah, this is another really good question. So helping. Yeah, it's not, it's not a softball one. <laughs> no, it's not. And I find it a little bit interesting, too, because I've been asked, I've, you know, we get this question asked, okay. Occasionally, I think when people are willing to go there. So I think it's awesome that you guys are asking this on your on your podcast and having these conversations. Um, I kind of have a push pull to the question. I think I think the initial reaction is um, ideally, I think that you know my our identity should always help our practice. Um, there shouldn't be that hindering piece because I think if we are if we are being authentic in our identity, then 
it should always be feel like a benefit. Um, but I also get the nuance to the question of like our identity itself is not is what's hindering. It's that that hindering that idea is more placed on how our society, our systems, our institutions um, are the spaces that we can feel hindered or oppressed based on our identity. And so it's a I think it's always a tricky question kind of um, muddy through. But with that, uh, I identify as white cisgender female. My pronouns are she and her. And I feel like I come to this work with, with many privileged identities. Um, and so I think those privileged identities, it's really easy for it to hide what I need to see in this work because my, my lived reality, my lived experience is gonna be very different from those who are experiencing um, more subjugated or oppressed identities. And so I, you know, cognizant of that gap. And so I think um, that very much is hindering. I know that that's there because I just, I have, I see the world through a different lens. And so I'm always looking at how to expand that and change that over time and grow. Um, but I also think that piece because of the, the wonderful people I've gotten to know, the conversations I've been able to have, the challenges that I've been able to receive from other people. Um, these, the privileged identities force me into a space of listening. Um, they force me into a space of vulnerability. They force me to really um, deal with things on a deeper level if I'm going to be authentic in this work, if I'm going to be really present with people. Um, so I think it's, you know, I, I think it's all from a very simple standpoint. I think our identities always help us, but I think from that societal systemic perspective, I think I think you have helping and hindering no matter where you're at on your identity. And it just depends, are you, are we tapping into that or not? And I know that, you know, I work constantly to tap into pushing and challenging and, and bringing in the chaos and figuring out how to integrate that into my perspective and into my lens. But it's, 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 it's hard. And I think the hard piece for me coming from that privileged space is not seeing the gap and being so apt to listen that I, for, that I forget to engage. You know, knowing that listening is necessary and it's huge and it's vital and I should be taking a step back and hearing other people, but then not taking such a far step back to listen that I'm not continuing to engage in that conversation. I don't know if that answers. <laughs> absolutely bring sure. up a great point of just yeah sometimes we get so wrapped up in in the identity we're coming to the table with that it can keep us from really just listening to the basic words and the basic needs because sometimes miraculously people are able to just say what they want and need it doesn't happen all the time mm -hmm. but those few times when people do feel empowered enough and they're saying something and we're looking for nuance 
It's, mm-hmm. It does not happen often, but when it does, we might miss it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, definitely. What a great answer. Thank you. Thank you yeah. for that. It's so, uh, Joanne and I really enjoy going through these questions over the patch ones. Like maybe, you know, maybe it's time to rehash this one, or maybe yeah. it's time to add, like, add subtext to this one. Mm-hmm. It's It's been very cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <Love it>. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of a rehashed question, um, what's something about yourself that would surprise us and our listeners? That was a surprise. Um, so I think probably now that I've I've talked about all of this, maybe it wouldn't be so, <laughs> so <laughs> surprising. <laughs> um, but like I said, we're at birthing season right now, and I am. Um, not even mildly. I, I am obsessed with birth to the point where if, if I knew when each animal was going to be born, you, it would be on my calendar. It would be, (laughs) all right, I gotta, I gotta wrap that visit up because I've got to go to the farm and be there. Um, I, I just, I love that, that space. It's just like this space of like so much work that is going on but then this profound amount of like peace. And I think, you know, um, uh, humans that have been able to experience that space just from, from, from our standpoint, um, it's, it's there, it's there when I go out there and I watch that with animals. And so any chance I can get, and my husband is always like, just let them do their thing. You don't need to be there the entire time. Just let, and I'm like, I'll just peek and I'll just, it's a pie. <laughs> but I think the same goes, I think um, another, again, maybe not surprising, but why I loved hospice so much is not just, you know, the, the amazing people that you end up meeting. I mean, when you're, when you're working with people that are, at end of life, the, the, the clarity and the space there is so honoring. Um, and I've had the opportunity to be with a few people as they, as they have, have been walking through that dying process and as they've died and being in that space. And it feels, it feels like there's the, the connection with birth there's, it feels like a very similar space. There's very different emotions going on. There's a lot of the same emotions going on, but there's like a peacefulness there that um, if I can be in those spaces, if people or animals allow me into those spaces, like it's just such a privilege and an honor to, to, to be there and experience that. So that may surprise, may not surprise <laughs> the listener. Even if it's not surprising, that's the coolest thing I've heard in yeah. like a week. So thank you. That's so, I, I was I was reflecting on, I used to work in a long-term care facility and just reflecting on the yeah. times when I got to be present um, when someone was at the end of their life and just how like not scary it was and how like beautiful it was to be there and like knowing exactly what to do for that person in that time and how like overwhelmingly beautiful um, that is so. Yeah. And how like profound that is, right? Like you you hold on to that. You don't lose those, those memories that it, you know, it changes you. It's really amazing. 
I think it makes me sad that people have such a misconception about hospice. I, it, it is such an incredible thing to be able to give someone relief and to be able to be with someone at the end of this long, long mm-hmm. road. It's, mm-hmm. And especially when people get to live into older age, you know, when you're there for someone who has been alive for like 90 years, yeah. like we don't have, we can't conceptualize that. Like we can try, <laughs> but that, that life that's there and oh it's just yeah it's Mm -hmm. something else it's something that's hard to have words around oh I agree yeah I feel that oh yeah sorry I'm like about to cry (laughs) no it's oh yeah this is I think this is really nice okay in a good way too not even in like a sad way just in like a like being thankful that I was like led into those spaces Um, yeah yeah and just that that awe that's there I just okay I have to tell the quick story like of course we're trying so hard at you know we're doing this like landscape integration so we're talking (laughs) we're talking the dirt all the time we're talking the sky (laughs) and we're trying to start instilling I've got a five-year-old and a seven-year-old we're trying to kind of instill that awe into them and we went, we were walking across the field. So we kind of, we, we live, um, on 40 acres and my parents live across the way. So we just send the kids across the field when they need to go visit the, the grandparents <laughs> or when we need a little <laughs> break. And I'm walking across the field with my son and the field is full of grass. And it's like, it had just dawned on him that that because we talked about grass before it had just dawned on him that like one of those single pieces of grass was connected to this entire field and he was like if this was people there would be gazillions and gazillions of people here and do you think that the grass like has the amount of of thoughts and feelings and energy that we do and he just starts crying and we're in the middle of the field and he's crying and experiencing this grass and I'm like okay I must have done something right because (laughs) (laughs) yes he's crying I'm crying we're touching the grass and you know that that is not um I never saw that 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 coming and realizing that those there's those awe moments that are just around us all the time and like you were saying um Joanna they're not sad moments but they they bring this this emotion to you that you can't help but 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 have tears and to you know really feel that so I pre I appreciate you saying that thank you if anyone is listening (laughs) I, I if you're listening to the episode just pause right now and look around right like hit the pause button or we'll just be quiet for a few moments and just kind of like look around what we were talking about earlier about sustainability you know we have just so much to consume that it takes up all of our attention we're not able to have these macro level realizations as often as maybe we would benefit from so try your best to be more mindful today of just everything that makes up everything around you I read recently about this man who thanked everyone who was involved in making him a cup of coffee. Like he went to, I mean, obviously this is like 
you don't have to do all this, but he went to go <laughs> to thank the people that harvested the beans. And he went to thank the people at the coffee shop. He thanked the distributors. He thanked, you know, the barista. He thanked everyone. And it gave him an idea of just how much work is put into making uh, small things in our life, in our daily life, just occur easily. Mm-hmm. So a bit of a stretch, but, <laughs> but, but try that out. Yeah. Oh, man. All right. <laughs> Rebecca, are there any resources you think everyone should know about? <laughs> Segway. So sorry. That's like a Kool-Aid oh, man yeah. segue. Of, <laughs> just, here we are. I thought it was much smoother than that. But yeah, yeah, yeah. You're, you're right. What's your favorite therapy great. outfit? No, yeah. tell me. What's, <laughs> what's your favorite breakfast? Um, I could probably go on for that for way too long. Let's not. <laughs> All right. That's why we've eliminated uh, the question. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't eliminated the question, but <laughs> I've done my work. <laughs> so yes, any resource that you think a book everyone should read, a website everyone should know about. Um, yeah, and well, a book that I'm going through right now that I find that it's it's called Body Thrive, and it's by Kate Stillman. I just, I just started going through it and I just find her to be fascinating. And she's kind of looking at that same, you know, self-care from a different lens where you're not adding, but you're just kind of changing. Um, you're taking those habits that are not helpful. We know what they are <laughs> and switching mm-hmm. them into something that actually, you know, brings meaning to your life. So I really been enjoying that book so I will I will add that in but I'm really excited to share about um, my burnout to bravery program it is a five-week group coaching program for highly motivated motivated helping professionals healers and change makers to integrate landscape to develop their own unique vision um, to to recreate ethics means in a real way and to really work towards eliminating burnout and rediscovering the joy in our work and the profound impact that we can have in the work that we do. So you can learn more about the Burnout to Bravery program by, or sign up by going to www.justlivingtherapy.org. And you can also schedule a free strategy session with me. I, I love meeting with people. I love talking with people and um, figured out how to best best support people through this through this journey and getting people to really sit with themselves and reconnect with their, themselves and do that deep work. I just it's way too exciting for me. I love it. That's amazing. amazing. Thank you. <laughs> we just said the same thing. Anyway, <laughs> do that. Yeah. Are we ready for our last question? Which is the would you rather question? Yes. Okay. (laughs) It's not that it's not as like um, terrifying as I made it sound. (laughs) Uh, Would you rather be able to rewind time or be able to know the future? Oh, (laughs) that one. That's hard. Especially when I'm sitting here, like it's all about the present moment. I know. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I think I would be curious about 
going back just from the standpoint of I think that we lose so much history we lose so many of these conversations with even you know our own our own ancestors and like if there would be a way to have some conversations and you know these things that like my grandparents learned like really integrate the things that they learned in versus having them feel like more passing conversations that I don't really integrate that could be that could be pretty cool I don't think I want to go into the future that just sounds scary <laughs> that sounds kind of scary my anxiety <laughs> does that enough for me already so like <laughs> <laughs> right. I'm already trying to think about what it is like I don't need to go there yeah. and know it. <laughs> yeah I feel like we know the future anyway we've all seen this movie <laughs> We, yeah. we have an idea of what's what's going to happen. I, I I personally love the idea of kind of going back and watching uh, family history, like some type of like VHS collection. I think Ooh, that that's a nice so cool. idea. Yeah, Joanna, what about you? Yeah, I'm gonna copy your idea and uh, watch. Cop- VHS. Copy it like a VHS tape. Yep, I'm gonna copy <laughs> like a VHS tape. Uh, so it's a little grainy, um, okay. but it's 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 still good. So I can't not tell this story. Maybe I shouldn't. I'm going to tell it. So when I was young, I there was a Gilligan's Island marathon on and I recorded <laughs> like seven hours of Gilligan's Island. And I just watched these VHS tapes over and over again. And I had the commercial jingles from the commercials at the time. They are burned into my memory. So if you are wondering what the early chewy granola bar commercials sounded like, I'm your girl with the answer to that question that's amazing I'm not going to share it here not until someone asks so okay yeah I think I got like Folgers stuck in my head from childhood the Folgers coffee commercial yep (laughs) you're like there it is yep I got that one yeah it's It's going there it's going it's they're present yep let's talk over it all right Rebecca where can people find you online they can find me at www.justlivingtherapy.org. Thank you. All right, perfect. <laughs> well, it was so wonderful to have you with us. What a pleasure. We got into things I didn't expect. So thank you for going yeah. to those places with us. Yeah, this has been fun. Thank you guys yeah. so much. Thank you for listening to the show. Be sure to subscribe slash rate slash review us on Stitcher, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. Mm. Apple Podcasts. You can check us out on Instagram at TNDPod, on Twitter at TNDPod1, one as in the number one, or visit our website, TNDPodcast.com. That's TNDPodcast.com when I speak more slowly. Yes. Uh, we also have a Patreon, which is patreon.com slash TND podcast. It's got some cool stuff in it. We've got a, we've got a bonus episodes. We've got um, history lessons. We've got so many other things. Uh, again, that's patreon.com slash TND podcast. If you'd like to send us an email, um, either you want to be on the show or you just have a thought, uh, you can send that to therapists next door at gmail.com. That's therapist plural next door at gmail.com. Sarah, is there anything that you would like to plug? Yeah. Catch me on teletherapy with Sarah on Instagram, my website, teletherapy with Find blog posts for working class turned professional millennials 
and also coaching for exploited therapists who are done with being exploited and would like to be liberated. That's the tagline it's been decided on. Joanna, how about you? What do you want to plug? Um, Yeah, you can find me at orianatherapy.com. Um, I'm also going to plug, since we've been talking about sustainability, um, check out if you are part of Facebook, there's buy nothing groups on Facebook for your area. I know in Philly, it's, um, you know, neighborhood by neighborhood, really great place to find things that you don't have to buy and also give things away that you don't have to throw away. So um, wonderful, wonderful. Uh, I like community. that. Check that out. Yeah. Cool. All right, friends, it's been a time. Until next time, we are your therapists next door. Therapists (laughs) next door. (laughs) Bye. Bye.